Our new segment is called On the Spot. It's We're going to do an in-depth interview with people who may already be here as guests, like Justin is tonight, or may just bring them in to do the interview on our own. Or, as we found out last week, we may just ambush people and start interviewing them against their consent. <sighs> Man on the street. Are you ready to be put on the spot? I'm absolutely ready to be put on the spot. Very cool. Now, you, you turned pro in 2009. And it's yes. amazing that you've been fighting professionally for right in the neighborhood of nine years, but you've been boxing for a lot longer than that. Tell me a little bit about how you started in boxing when you were growing up and then what you were able to do as an amateur, because you had some pretty impressive amateur accomplishments. Oh, yeah. Amateur was a lot of fun. Um, basically, I was a super duper obese kid and um, my parents split up and my parents split up, basically, and my mom's new boyfriend who basically became my stepfather fred he's a super fitness freak like he's in his 70s now still and like can bench over 300 that's okay, okay that's impressive he's going to be yeah, the toughest you know, he's going to be the, the man, toughest man, bar man, fighter at the nursing home my goodness <laughs> yeah yeah no i don't think he's ever going to die he's super old and he's still <laughs> he can, 70 is not super old for 300 pound but, bench press pretty damn good yeah it really like, is. you would never be able to tell by looking at him. But anyway, um, he was super into fitness and stuff. And, I mean, I was this little 11-year-old kid. I was I was in the high twos when I was 11. I was, like, probably 260, 270, like five foot four, five foot five. But anyway, he let me start working out in his basement to like so we could bond, basically, and help me get in shape. Because, let's face it, I probably would have been on my way to an early 20s heart attack. But because, I mean, I stress eight and stuff because my parents and all that fun stuff. But, sure. Teach their own. Everyone copes different. So I started working out in his basement, and he had a heavy bag, and I really liked hitting it. And he happened to live not even a block away from the PAL. So he took me into the PAL, which is Police Athletic League, it's youth boxing program. And he took me into the PAL, and I just loved it. Absolutely soaked it up. 11 years old. And um, I got into that, and all suddenly my dad was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to get you a fight, yeah, and all this. But well, your dad was, was into racing, wasn't he? Yeah, he he was a um, dirt track, circle track guy, dirt okay. track late models. Right, so so he was into racing, but you talked about how your stepdad was the one who who kind of got you in this direction with the heavy bag and everything. Did he have any background in boxing at all, or did he just have a heavy bag for fitness purposes? <laughs> heavy bag for fitness purposes. I mean, he liked um he liked boxing. And when he, I think he was in the Navy way back when he said like they put on gloves and stuff and they would mess around, but nothing ever, ever serious. Sure. But he just had a heavy bag to stay in shape and stuff. And he would hold it for me and he's like, Oh yeah, man. He's like, you got fast hands and stuff. And we just got to talking. And I mean, I loved boxing and because of Rocky. Well, of course, every, every, every little kid. But anyway, every little um, kid that's born in the nineties loves a movie made in 1976. <laughs> Hey, I mean, Rocky's timeless. I, I agree with you 100%. Rocky's timeless. But yeah, so I got in, I got into the pal through him. And then once I got into the pal, my dad was suddenly like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Tim seen I had zero athletic ability whatsoever. I was not athletic at all. And Tim, the head coach at the pal, right. seen that. But he's seen that I was working my ass off like. I wanted this more than I'd ever wanted anything in my life. But my dad wants to brag to his friends, oh, let's, Tim, we need to get him a fight. He's ready to fight. He's been in here five months. He's ready to fight, da 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 da, da. But there's not any other 11-year-old kids that are my like my weight. Right. So we lie about my, my age. We say I'm 13. I fight a 15-year-old who happened that we didn't know at the time, who happened to be ranked nationally. I mean, he wasn't super duper good or anything, but I mean, he had been to the national tournament stuff. His name was Josh Baker. I, yeah, I believe Baker was his last name. And you were how I mean, old 11, at this point? You were eleven. I was I was eleven, and he was fifteen. But we Holy said I was smokes. thirteen, <laughs> so I could so I could take the fight. Right. I fought him in East Liverpool. Johnny the Macho Midget Bailey was my referee. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, and basically, this kid just comes out, steamrolls me. Like, I go down in the first 15 seconds. Of course, I get up. I've never had any quit in me. Never I go once. down like 20 seconds later. All he's doing is just he's barreling at me with one twos, but I wasn't ready, and I knew I wasn't ready. And um, the only person that didn't think I wasn't ready is my dad. Right. And um, 
I mean, because Tim knew I wasn't ready. I end up, I go down three times in the first round and I lose. And then after that, like, Dad's like, oh, you don't need to box anymore. All this. And Tim takes me aside and he's like, I know you love this. Let's let's keep at it. Let's keep going. And eventually, long story short, oh, what a span. All the way to 2008, I end up winning five national titles. I was, as a junior, as a junior, but in the senior division of juniors, which is 15, 16 years old, I got ranked as high as unofficially number one in the magazine, the USA Boxing Magazine. I was number two for two years behind Alex Rivera and then behind Nick Kisner for one. And then and as an open male, which is 17 and up, like 17 through 40, I was ranked as high as number four. I What was my amateur record? Without any walkovers or anything, I think my amateur record, I was like 85 and 36. And then with walkovers, the number jumps like drastically. Sure. Oh, but, that is, um, that's a serious amount of yeah. amateur experience, especially when you're not in Russia. When you're not in Las Vegas or Chicago or Houston, one of those amateur boxing mainstays, that's an amazing amount of experience to have, especially in your age group, because you you didn't fight amateurs all the way through adulthood. You stopped when you were 18. So yeah. let, you know, let's first of all, how many times you won the Ohio State Fair, which I mean, that is the pinnacle of amateur boxing in the United States. You can have ringside worlds all you want. Winning the Ohio State Fair is the deal in amateur boxing. How many you did you win it twice or three times? I won it three times. That's I won it I the year that it was the biggest national tournament ever. There had 900, 900 entrants. It was the year, the same year that the ringside worlds decided they were going to start. Right. Was that was the last year of like the big Ohio State Fair. They had three rings running, and um, I think it was 2004, either 2004 or 2005. Mm-hmm. But it, my my first one was when they had, they were the biggest. I won it then, and then I missed it the next year because I had got a job and I had to work. Right. And I was 16. I mean, my parents were like, oh, you're 16. Get a job now, bub. That lasted like a month, but a month, a month to miss, a month to miss that state fair. And then I won it in, oh, okay. I won it oh four, oh five, and oh seven, And I missed oh six. That's pretty serious. What was the job that you worked for a month? I've got to know. I, I worked at Longer Burgers Basket Company, package pickup. I catered to like rich old ladies that bought stuff. I had to go to the different areas and pick up their stuff and bring it back to my main area. Then they would, when they were getting ready to get on their bus, they would give me their little ticket and their little snod face and be like, I am to get this. And I'd have to go get it for them and walk it. And that lasted a month and you decided you'd had enough. Yeah, because they were making me, they were making me pick work or boxing. And at that time in my life, boxing, it was it. Like, they were like, well, you can't have these days off. You have to work. I was like, well, we ha- we fight almost every weekend. I can't work these days. They were sure. like, well, you need to choose. I was like, see ya. Well, and you're 16. You only get to yeah. be 16 once. You've got the rest of your life to work away like a slave, like Steve yeah. was saying. <sighs> but because I was 16, it limited the days I could work as well, which well, made the weekends like, oh, yeah, work the weekends because you got school and all this stuff. So, so you get to 2009 yeah. and you decide, I've accomplished everything I can accomplish as an amateur. I've made the very clear and simple and honest decision that I'm going to go pro. Is that exactly how it worked out? Basically, I got tired of getting beat up for free. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I when I started fighting an open men's division, I had my first open men's fight at 16 years old because the date of determination fell after my birthday. Right. But the tournament hadn't went on yet, so technically, by the time we made it to nationals, it was it was the first year they called the U.S. Men's the Future Stars Tournament. I don't know if it's still the Future Stars Tournament or not. I don't know if it is or not. But but that's when it was. And I had my first open men's fight then, and I fought a six foot five, three hundred forty pound giant in Cincinnati named Charles Smiley. Oh, screw and that! And I realized men hit a whole lot harder than children do. <laughs> well, that it was just yeah, especially when you're not yeah, getting it, paid for it. Yeah, it was it was bad. And then so I fought tournament after tournament, fight after fight as an open male. And it, eventually, I turned eighteen, and I, I had a couple more fights after I was eighteen. But I fought a guy named Tommy Poe. He only had two amateur boxing matches, but he was an MMA guy because at that time, MMA was like 
the hot thing. It was rising like crazy. And I mean, he was just built. He was probably 30 years old. And, um, and we went to war. We went to war. This is, you could still fight four round fights. It was four two minute rounds. Okay. We were a main event on a card. And, um, and I mean, we went to war for four rounds and we got to talking afterwards. He's like, yeah. He's like, man, he's like, I just wanted to get three fights. I'm going pro. I was like, you're going pro. He's like, yeah. He's like, I got a guy that he'll pay me a thousand dollars for my first four round fight. And if I keep winning, he said, he'll keep paying me more. And then we'll make some big money together. I was like, well, shit, I need to do that. And that's basically a spark from there. I got taught. I was getting hit by these monsters for free. We were waiting around for the Olympics, but I mean, yeah, it doesn't, it, I did not. So. Yeah. But you know, as well as I do that amateur boxing is more corrupt than professional boxing oh, is. Yeah. And if you're not on, if you're not from the West coast, you can forget being on the, the Olympic team, unless you literally go in and knock everyone out. And it's been that yep. way for quite a few years. So you decide to go pro. You've got your pro debut in August of 2009 against Paul Zalas. Tell me a little bit about what you felt like going into that first fight. I mean, I felt good. Um, I managed to get fat before before the fight. And then Tim comes to me and he says, you can't be that big going into this fight. I want you to lose 30 pounds. Jeez. So I lose 30 pounds in a month prior to that fight. I weighed in at 259, which I think is still like one of my lowest. In of a, my you lost 30 pounds in a month? Oh, that's nothing for me. I can I can fluctuate weight like nobody's business. Oh but yeah, I lost goodness. 30 pounds in a month. Well, that's outrageous. But you went in, yeah. took the fight. That was in Butler, Pennsylvania. Yeah, took the fight. We thought he was going to be um, be this big wild man. We looked him up. We've seen some of his amateur fights. He was 1-0. And um, just the reality of the pro game hit me like and I don't know, like a big old cock, I guess, just slapping right across the face. And um, so a nice hoagie slap were, right on the forehead. Yeah, basically, yeah. He just <laughs> mushroom stamp. <laughs> but yeah, he um, it was just it was bad. He hit hard. The gloves were smaller, so you felt more of it. There's no headgear. That took some adjusting because Tim wouldn't sure. let us spar without headgear. Mm-hmm. So hate head that, that took a lot of adjusting. And um, Steve hates headgear. Oh, Steve yeah. just is repulsed by the concept of it. Once you get used to no headgear, it is great. It's wonderful. You have more peripherals. You can do slicker things with your head. Like, I headbutt people a lot, and they don't even realize I'm headbutting them. <laughs> but... With, without without headgear, it's a completely different ball game, and I still people that were at that debut to this day tell me that I was the much better boxer, and I landed a lot of sneaky shots, and I did a lot of stuff that they just they could tell there was skill there. I was just I was a child fighting a full grown man, sure, and I didn't understand it at the time. Everybody's like, "Well, you don't have your man strength yet." And I was like, "I'm 18. I've been doing this since I was 11 years old. What do you mean I don't have my man strength? I know what I'm doing, but." In reality, I didn't really know what I was doing because if I was smart, I would have waited. I wouldn't have fought a guy of that stature. I would have fought somebody softer as my debut. Well, the government I mean, the government says that you're an adult, so obviously I'm ready to go in and fight grown people. The government says yeah. I'm 18, so I'm an adult, so I must be an adult. It works that way. So, okay, that one didn't go your way. The first time that I ever encountered you was the first, fu- first fight that you had with Kevin Franklin in Morgantown in August of 2011. And looking back, considering how few fights you had had, I can't believe they sanctioned that to be a six-round fight, but they did. Kevin ended up dropping you a couple of times in that fight. I'd never met you, never seen you, and I came away that night incredibly impressed with the skill that you showed. But again, that was another fight that even two years later, after your debut, I could still tell... Your youth was was still present. You didn't have your man strength yet, but you you showed a lot more than I expected from someone that supposedly had the record that you had coming into the fight because you were over zero and three or zero and four coming into that fight. But I remember that fight incredibly well. Then we go into a fight in January of 2012, and you fought Jeremiah Williams who at that point was winless and you fought him in Elizabeth, Indiana at a casino. And that was the first time that you acquainted yourself with getting robbed in professional oh, boxing. Yeah, was, Tell me about that fight with Jeremiah. Yeah. It was bad. Um, took the fight semi short notice for Kurt Allen. Super good guy. One of the best guys I've met in boxing yet. He boxed and, until uh, he was about 50, didn't he? 50 or 55. He was, he was 49. I think that night when he <laughs> fought Butterbean. Yes. And he fought after that yeah. in Indiana. He fought a couple of times after that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a real good dude, real nice guy. But we went into the fight. Um, Jeremiah was 0-8 at the time. 
We knew he was durable. He had fought some good guys. This was my first time with Joey only in my corner. Oh, I thought we, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know that Tim wasn't with you that night. No, Tim wasn't with me. It was me and Joey. Okay. And uh, me and Tim had. I mean, we've always been cool, but we'd split ways. I, I wasn't working out with him anymore. I had opened Hands of Stone, which was my own boxing gym, right. and um, and I taught Joey how to be a corner. And he was in the corner when I fought Kevin the first time we ever we ever met. Right. But he was just a second. So this was his first official official go. So me and him, we knew. We knew it was a winnable fight. We knew the guy was durable. Our plan was to box, and that's what we did. And um, I go out in the first round. I still remember it pretty vivid. I land a double jab on his forehead because he has, like, this weird shell defense, kind of like a, a bad, big, winky right. And um, and I landed two on the top of his forehead, right over top of his gloves because he tried to shell up. And then he, like, when I knocked his head back, it raised his elbows up, and I landed a right hand right to his gut. And I remember thinking, man. I can win this fight. This is a very winnable fight. Sure. And um, and he touched me maybe twice clean in that entire round. I probably only landed like maybe 10 or 12 clean shots myself, but it was a lot more effective than, than what he was landing. And sit down. Joey's going crazy in the corner. Oh, yeah, man, we can win this. We're, we're going to whoop this motherfucker. I'm like, Joey, take out my mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> he takes out my mouthpiece, and then he just continues. Yeah, 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 we we got it. We got it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep pressuring this, that, and other. And um, puts my mouthpiece back in. It has a giant glob of Vaseline on it. <laughs> oh, God. Joey, you, you're better than I that. I bite down on it. Yeah, we, we joke around about it all the time. Bite down on it nice and squishy. But basically go out and rounds two three and four are more of the same except he's clinching me a lot more anytime i get close and i'm working my free hand in the clinch because the ref was ref wasn't breaking it up so i'm basically i'm just hitting him with one one arm i'm staying i'm standing in the middle of my room like throwing punches right now you guys can't see it so um <laughs> i'm working my free arm the entire time we're clinched and stuff and i just outwork him he lands maybe 12 punches clean the entire fight and I lose a majority decision. That was just, and garbage. I was like, "Oh man, that that's just awful." Everyone came up to me after the fight. They're like, "Oh, you you did so much better." He's like, "You won that fight. You got robbed. This, that, and other." And I mean, it just took a downward spiral from there. See, already at this point, I didn't even I didn't know you that well. I knew who you were. I remembered you from whenever you fought Kevin the first time. But it's so evident, at least looking back how different things could have been for you had you been managed correctly from the beginning. And you really never had that opportunity. And that that didn't happen even for a short period of time until much later down the road. But we encountered each other again a little later that year. You fought Kevin Franklin again in Logan, which was a really interesting place for that fight to take place. And then you fought John Hill. And you you gave Kevin a seriously tough fight in that rematch. I thought, I thought it was a closer fight the second time than it was the first. The fight with John, he knocked you down in the first round, but it was nip and tuck. The whole way that fight too, and I'm John. I worked in Kevin's corner for the second fight. I worked in John's corner for that fight, uh, working against you because we didn't really know each other at that point. And seeing the growth that you had, just just being a pro, and there's a meaning whenever you say that somebody's being a pro in this sport. The growth that you showed just coming into those fights was so apparent. And I knew that you had something coming just around the corner if you could get the right break. And that break came about a month later because you went to Madison and fought a joker named Jason Harbin and got your first win. What do you remember most about that first win against Harbin? Um, I remember I knocked him down. He got up, called me a pussy, said he was ready to fight and quit. <laughs> That's true. Didn't didn't it look like he yeah. slipped on the third knockdown or something or and it was just uh, Or there well, weren't there three was, knockdowns. Only, you only knocked him down once and then he he got up and said something and then turned around and walked away. Yeah, I mean, I was jacked. We come out, I can tell you the whole fight. It only lasted about a minute. Come out um He's not kidding. I don't doubt that. No, I, I I jab high. I jab high. I throw a right hand to the body, which is my favorite punch in the world. Two straight downstairs. I can land it almost whenever I want. I might eat a left hook sometimes, but I can land it whenever I want. And um, I do that, boom. And then he flurries on me like this weird tough man flurry. And I show up and I walk through it. And I decide, all right, we're going to fight now. And I walk him to the ropes. I land a right hand. Um, I don't know if it's balance or what, but if you look at it, 
he goes down very weirdly. It was an awkward claims, knockdown from from the feet up. It just looked weird. Yeah, like he claims it was a push, but I never pushed him. Like you can tell in the no. video, it wasn't a push; it was a punch. You pushed him with your but, fist. Um, yeah, with my fist in his face. Yeah, and he went down, and I was jacked. I mean, it was my first knockdown. I was like, yeah. So, so I I let out a yell, like, yeah, and I like do a little circle, and then I run to the neutral corner because I'm excited. Well, you didn't. And, let's uh, be honest, you didn't run; you jogged. Yeah, I jogged. It, it I, was, I don't run. I've never there. seen you sprint ever, not once. No, the house could be thing. on fire, and you're jogging right. out. Yeah, come on, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no. Basically, he went down. It was weird. He got up, and he's yelling at me in the neutral corner, not even paying attention to the referee. He's like, "Come on, puss! Come on, puss!" And uh, <laughs> they walk him over to the corner to get his mouthpiece back in because his mouthpiece came out on the way down. And they wave it off. He quit in the he quit in the corner and um, wouldn't make eye contact with me. Wouldn't even stay in the ring while I got my hand raised. He just stormed out and left. He curred him up, and it was <laughs> and he yeah, never never it, fought it again. Was, he never fought no, again. Never fought again. Well, I can see why because he really didn't even fight that night. But you know what? He stepped in there. He ate some leather, and you got to win. We're not going to cover every yeah. fight. We're just going to hit some of your key ones before we hit the uh, the rapid fire. Well, I bet you guys the first time. Gotcha. Uh, you fought Jermaine Walker and dropped a, sp- a six round split decision. A fight that you changed your strategy about halfway through or after a couple of rounds. But I didn't corner that one with you. But I I, I thought at worst that was a draw. I thought you fought really really well that night. And then you go in and get your second professional win. And that was the night that we started working together. And I'll tell a little bit about how that one started. Uh, at that point, our friend Chase Hill was still doing a lot of stuff in boxing. And he had, what was it? Was it called the Lights Out Boxing Gym in Madison? Is that what he called that thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he called it Lights Out. So yep. he had the Lights Out Boxing Gym in Madison and called everybody to come in. He had you under contract at that point. And was going to try to help yeah. you build your record up a little bit. So he called everybody to come down and spar. And you drove down from Zanesville. And, and I got to see you there because I brought Dave down. And and we all worked together. Because there were a few people fighting on that show coming up. Because I had Jason Smith fighting that night. And who else? I had John Hill fighting against Greg Maynard that night. That was coming up. That was the craziest one-round fight I've ever seen in my life. And I was in the corner yeah. for it. But we were. I, I saw you and said hello and talked to you for, for a minute. And you asked me who I was cornering, and I told you, and you said, oh, good. You asked me if I was working with Deskins, and I said, no. And you said, oh, good. It'll be nice to finally have a fight in West Virginia, and you're not in the other corner coaching against me. <laughs> and I said, well, if you need me in the corner, I'll be more than happy to corner for you. And you said that you would like that. So our first fight together was you against then undefeated 1-0 Matt Deskins. And you went in and did something to Matt Deskins that essentially ruined his reputation as a professional fighter in the greater Boone County, Logan area in West Virginia, because you beat him to a point that you collapsed one of his lungs with your body attack and ended up brutalizing him over a fight that lasted three rounds, but it must have felt like ten. And Matt's a great dude, but that fight went terribly wrong from the very beginning. And after the first round, you came back to the corner, and I said, keep attacking his body, look for uppercuts when they're there, and you're going to chop him down and knock him out. And that is still one of the most impressive performances of your career, Justin. I mean, they forced me to get in shape. Matt said, I'm not fighting you unless you're 260 pounds. And I was like 290. And I was like, well, shit, if you want me to get in shape, I will get in shape and fight you. <laughs> and that's, that's what I did. Well, the best way to get you angry is to tell you you're not allowed to eat. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was that was bad. And then I was pissed off at him after the fight, too. Well, I was I was really mad because I fasted like a day before the fight because I was right there. I was right. I was like at 262 the day before the fight. So I didn't eat for like a day and a half before the fight. And then after weigh-ins, me and my wife went to B-dubs and I ate like two bites of a wing and immediately I could feel myself I was about to have the shits oh, or my, oh, or my body wasn't ready. And oh, I was so awful. angry. I had all this food in front of me and I couldn't eat it. I was like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill him. I'm going to take that out on Deskins. I've had enough. Yeah, it was, so, it was so bad. And then... And then I got mad at him after the fight because he had to he had to leave in a freaking ambulance. It's like, come on, oh, made me hurt you. Like, how how just... dare you leave in an ambulance? You ought to walk out here under your own power with your half a lung and your broken ribs. Well, Carry yourself I, I out of here like it. a man, Matt Deskins. I don't mean it like that. I mean it like, man, you made me have to fucking hurt you. Why? 
Why you, why you do it like that? We're not, being, no, we're not being, super, we're not being mean to Matt Deskins. Matt, Matt's such a cool dude. Matt's a super good guy. He's talked to me plenty of times after the fight. He told me that I'm his boy's favorite fighter, and even admits it's a little bit hard to swallow that he's not his own son's favorite fighter. But it's just it's awesome that that they followed me after that. And um, anytime I have a fight coming up, he hits me up. He's like, "Yeah, man." He's like, "Good luck. I hope you do good." Yeah, uh, he's a big fan. Yeah, he's become I very mean, complimentary. That's absolutely correct. He, yeah, he and he's a warrior. I beat on him. I mean, the first round. I like I set a decent pace and he matched the pace. But like I said again, he forced me to get in shape. And I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but when you make me get in shape, I can fucking fight. And, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the second round, I picked up the pace a little bit and he kind of stayed where he was at, and you could tell by the end of the second he was gassed really bad. Right. And then I I forget exactly what was said in the corner between you and Chris, but I remember it was something along the lines of like we're there, we can win this just keep doing what you're doing but a switch and you can you can see it on the tape a switch in my mind flips it's like all right it's time to hit the fucking gas it was kill mode we're going to do it you went into kill mode we're going to do it now yeah and i landed a long range right uppercut from like i think in like the first five or ten seconds of the third round and then just from then on it's just an onslaught i'm sorry it wasn't kill mode it's die mode because you start you start yelling die with every punch you (laughs) land i love that die mode we've only got two or three more fights that i I really want to cover you fought mike shepherd you fought josh tufty both of those were fights where you set back you showed a lot of skill mike is just my power but he's mike (laughs) shepherd and he's a power punching monster and josh tufty is a seriously underrated skilled heavyweight. If he had any, if he had more power than he does, it's really remarkable to think of what he could do in the heavyweight division, but he just never really had the pop to hang in. So we go to 2013 and I get a phone call from Steve Neal from Signal 12 Gym in Fayetteville here in Southern West Virginia. And he's doing a show, uh, here in the Southern part of the state and they were wanting to match up Jonah Coger with Adam Oaks and they get a couple of weeks out from the fight and Adam Oaks just stops answering the phone, won't sign a contract, won't talk to anybody. And he calls me with a, a few days before the event and says, do you have anybody that'll fight Jonah Coger fairly cheap and, and, and will come down here and actually fight? And I thought, hey, that's a fight. We can get us a W. Because at this point, I was cornering you for quite a few fights at this point. Yeah. And you came in and I said, he'll, he'll fight him for expense money for the most part. And and that was music to Steve's ears. He's oh yeah, we're going to go do this. So you come down to fight Jonah Coger on short notice. Jonah's a lefty, which is not something you particularly like to see at that point. And we worked on a game plan for a couple of days, really drilled it before the fight. You come out, knock Jonah down once, get a standing eight count on him, beat him all over the ring. I don't know if he's fought again since then. And you get a big win. And that, that probably is my favorite fight that you and I have had together in, in the years that we've been doing this. Fast forward 12 days later and you get to encounter George Euler yeah. in Madison. And, uh, Justin, do you know who was in the corner for George Euler that night, by the way? Um, no, I don't remember. Steve, who was it? It was me. <laughs> was it? Yeah. <laughs> nice. That was before I <laughs> knew awesome. Steve. I didn't know Steve then. No. So, yeah, he was in the other quarter that night, and my... I did not know that. I didn't let him sit down on his stool at the end of the first round. I was like, you didn't do shit. You have to stand. <laughs> and he stood. <laughs> Steve Randolph, awesome. the master motivator. So, I, I remember you said, you you told me you get to pick the entrance music for this fight. So, we came out to the ring to play that funky music, White Boy, uh-huh. and who, by White Cherry, I think is the name of that band or something. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. So, we came out to the ring. We we win a four-round decision. The memory of that fight is about 30 seconds left in the fight. You all are tied up on the ropes directly over our corner, and you, in the middle of a clinch, get in George Euler's ear and say, don't worry, I'm tired too. <laughs> Which makes me and James Armstrong lose our minds laughing. James is the ring announcer for all of the Black Eye Promotions fights. The clinch breaks, and then you go into die mode and land about 14 unanswered shots on the ropes and knock him down, and then the bell rings just as he gets up, and Mm -hmm. you win a four-round decision. We're not going to get into the Travis Clark foul fest in Weirton. We've already talked about the Sean Conway foolishness. That video, by the way, is posted on the episode page 
from the from uh, episode nine. Was that, that the we one did. in Pennsylvania? That's the Greg uh. Serb incident. The uh, the entire fight video is posted on the page for episode nine. So anybody that wants to see that can see it. We had the Justin Howes fight, which you took on short notice and competed very very well. We're going to talk a, just for a second. How good did it feel to score that one punch classic knockout over Pearl Dotson? And that'll be the last fight. Oh, you want we you. Uh Marquez him. That the one where you murdered him? Yeah, Mar- that'd be I the call one. Marquez. And we're going to put the highlight <laughs> of that one on the episode page two for this episode because I'm not going to put the whole fight up. I'm just going to put Jerry Davis's highlight clip on it and it'll become immediately nice. apparent why I'm putting Jerry Davis's highlight on it because Jerry's reaction Fuck. is fantastic. Fuck yes, it will. <laughs> So uh, you you came into that fight. I didn't get to be there, but I called you in the locker room for that fight because I was traveling. And I called you and we yes. talked about a couple of things. And I said, set him up and counter him and look for that overhand right. And you're going to blast him. I didn't think you would do that to him. But we talked about the I game plan. For, do that to him. Well, we spent four weeks talking about game plan for that fight and foot placement and trying to get him set up and breaking his rhythm. But we talked about that right hand. And then I talked to you before the fight that night. And then I get a call from Dave and he tells me, I still don't think Pearl's awake yet. And I thought, did he really (laughs) knock him out that bad? Then you send me the video of what what you did. How did you set up that shot? And uh, how did you feel whenever you landed it and realized he wasn't getting up? This is a guy that had a record at that point. He was what, eight and three, eight, three and one. He was uh, he was nine and he was nine and four. Okay. Yeah, he was he was nine and four at the time, coming off a of first round stoppage uh, over that JJ Armstrong guy. See that's see that's right because he had he came back and fought Keith Barr and that went poorly in a round, and then had that fight with JJ JJ Stewart, the MMA guy from Virginia, and yeah. stopped him sure. in Huntington, and then he fought you, and that was a fight that was supposed to happen after the Sean Conway fight, and but you broke your hand on Sean's head. So yeah. all this comes down the pike and you come out for that second round. What did you see in relation to what we had talked about and how did you pull it off? And then how did you feel whenever he went down on his face? I mean, I heard him. I heard him at the very end of the first round. I landed over an overhand right. I managed to, to slip out to my right a little bit and I just caught him on top of the forehead with a right hand. And he, and he was hurt. And at the time, I didn't understand how hurt he was. But watching the video, you can tell that he never recovers going into the second round. But um, no, come coming into the second round, I just I set a nice steady rhythm. I was planning on having a six round freaking grueling fight because me and Pearl were not very different when it comes to like style wise. He's a little oh, he's more of a plotter than I am. I'm a I'm a mover for a big guy, but he has but, that Steve uh, Dotson technique. I mean, he's he's a pretty technically sound guy, but he wasn't a big yeah. puncher. He was just somebody that was going to sit there a lot more than you were. You have you have more active feet than he did, and that's what set up a lot of stuff that happened in those two rounds. Yeah, and and that's what I mean by we're very similar. Neither one of us were big punchers. I don't consider myself a big puncher at all, especially for a heavyweight. Well, you've got those little uh, T Rex arms. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Can't can't generate much um inertia or velocity or i don't know some scientific term it's, it's force equals mass times acceleration is velocity right yeah i mean we'll just we'll edit that part out so i don't sound like an idiot right <laughs> i'll figure uh, i'll bleep it or, or he's gonna turn the volume up actually <laughs> yeah just just censor it like dub over some scientist talking i can do but, that. um <laughs> no anyway yeah we come out for that second round and yeah i know add's taking over again we come out for that second round and um i just i set a nice steady rhythm i'm not trying to punch myself out I'm planning on a six-round fight. I'm not planning on an early knockout. And um, he's firing a jab downstairs, and he's leaving himself open up top. And so I did exactly what we were talking about, and I, I come over top with the right hand, and it shakes him a little bit. And I'm catching angles. Like, I'm, I'm skating out left, skating out right, just seeing what's there. And um, then I heard him about a minute into the round. I actually heard him with the right hand, and I press him back into the ropes and I flurry on him, boom, boom, boom. Then I take a step out, and I throw a leaping left hook. And he blocks it Also, I take a couple steps back and let him walk off the ropes. Well, as soon as he walks off the ropes, I see him throwing a lazy jab. He's throwing it from his belly. So without even thinking, I just throw a right hand, and it lands on that temple. And I'm getting ready to throw another punch. Like, if you watch the video, you see me rushing forward. 
and he just he falls like a freaking trees boom he really did. and it was, it was surreal awful. i didn't know what was happening at first i was like what the hell just happened and then i realized i just knocked somebody out and i was like yeah i just knocked somebody out <laughs> and then i was like shit i like pearl and um because me and pearl we, we've always talked we've always been cool so it was kind of like one of those things what's going on Fuck yeah! I just knocked somebody out. Oh shit! I like that guy. And <laughs> that, I mean that—that's really what happened. Yeah, all in a span of like five seconds. So, so yeah, I got the win. I'm like, fuck yeah, I got this win. But at the same time, I'm like, shit. I hope Pearl's okay. And on the video, it looks like I knock him out and just leave. But in reality, I'm getting out of the ring to go over to the side where his head's at, and I'm apologizing to his wife. No, the, no, the video does not look like you're leaving. The video looks like you are racing to his side to check on him. And then Dave comes over, and he's like, let the doctors work on him, because you just iced him in front of his hometown, <laughs> which you did. And yeah, his wife, was his wife, as soon as he went down, you can see her kind of step around to the other side of the ring and yell at him to get up and after a couple of times yeah. realizes yeah he's not getting up and no, it was, i can't it believe was he, i can't believe it. he didn't fight did he fight anymore after that that was his last no, fight i think it? that was the last he, one yeah he retired yeah because he fought well there was one more in the middle there right travis before he clark. fought you he fought travis clark and he got hit with one left hook and his eye puffed up like he had a throw pillow inserted underneath it and they stopped it after a round yeah, and, and you ended his career that, that was terrible I, that fight's why i didn't think i was going to stop pearl because travis clark he he can punch pretty hard with his forearms his fists his elbows and his head he hits hard with all of them oh yeah and and it doesn't matter where either head body is that the marine genitals travis clark? uh travis is the guy is the ball oh he's a dick covered, with tattoos covered yeah. in tattoos all over the yeah, place a, and now yeah. does this he now he does the tough man video for jerry yeah, but that was that was a huge win for you it got you a bunch of points on box rec and it it was a big win over a guy with a, a really good record and it's it's something that i think is repeatable as soon as we can get you moving again career-wise because it's it's time to get you back in there are you ready for a few rapid fire questions go for it all right just just off the cuff let's see what you got since your debut in 2009, what has changed the most for you in boxing? I've gotten extremely fat. <laughs> That's your biggest change. Yeah, I mean, um, I've gotten a lot better at dealing with pressure, mm -hmm. and I've my style has changed drastically. You watch that first fight with Paul Zalas, I'm real light on my feet. I move, I punch a lot, a lot of wasted movements, a lot of wasted energy. I was still fighting like an amateur. Right. If you watch me fight now, you're like, holy shit, this guy's lazy. Is he going to do anything? But re really what I'm doing is I'm waiting for my opportunity to punch without wasting any any energy. So, yeah, my, I would probably say my style. Get the comedy out of the way. My style's changed. Well, we can accept both. Yeah. What is, what's been your proudest accomplishment? I, you've done a ton of the stuff in the amateurs. What's been your proudest accomplishment as a pro? As a pro, probably the Joshua Tufty fight. Um, I mean, it's not really accomplishment. I lost, mm -hmm. but he told me for two rounds, I was the best fighter that he ever faced. And I had the entire crowd. Pat Nelson was the announcer for that fight. Don't ask me why, but he announced my record. I was two and 12 one that fight. And he announced me as the man with literally nothing to lose with a record of two and 12. <laughs> That's Pat Nelson. And, um, That's Pat yeah, Nelson. He, and he did that. Good and grief. um and the whole place laughed at me. Ah, ha ha, two and twelve. Like the people sitting beside my wife and stuff were calling me teabag. This was before the fight started though. And um and she said they got up and left like midway through the second round. Wow. Because she was wearing her teddy bear shirt and stuff and, and they kinda seen that and they seen that I could actually fight. Sure. And um and just after that fight everybody come up to me, Oh man, that was a great fight, that was awesome. You're a hell of a fighter and all this. And Josh actually came to me after the fight. He was like, man, he was like, I do not know how you are two and 12. He was like, but I was worried for those first two rounds. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm not sure who was fighting for me, but, but I had a lot of fun. And because literally that fight, I worked a half a day. It was on a Friday. I worked a half a day and then drove to Wheeling. Like I got off work, picked up my wife and drove to Wheeling. And took my work boots off, took my pants off, pulled my trunks on, got my hands wrapped, and fought the current, at that time, NABF heavyweight champion, and just gave him the fight of his life. It was the fight of my life. Probably my best performance as a professional. Well, It was just so much fun. For me, the best performance was the one that came right after that, and that was the Jonah Coger fight, because it was, a, it was against a lefty that you didn't know on short notice. 
Lefty's automatically got in your head. You were coming I off the Tufty fight, and the confidence was there from that. And then you went in and let it out in that fight and started a two-fight win streak. You went two and two in a four-fight span, but you look at who you fought and how you did. It was it was tremendous for you, and that's one that's always stood out for me. But I think it was building off of that Tufty fight. What's been the biggest letdown for you as a pro? The biggest letdown, this is an easy one. That would have to be the Conway fight. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that because was I, highway robbery. I thought, I thought I pushed through that fight with a broken hand. I thought I won. I was landing body shots. I was landing jabs. I was missing my right hands on purpose. I will not deny that. Because every time I connected, even on accident, it hurt like a son of a bitch. But it was I setting thought up I the hook, though. Through. Yeah, I thought I pushed through and I thought I won that fight. And then to have the first card announced 40 36 Novera and then this little fucking midget comes out of nowhere steals the cards runs off to some fucking corner comes back we made a mistake and then I lose the next two cards 39 37 I mean I was like what the fuck just happened that was I've I've been in this stuff a long time and I've never seen anything quite like that before in person and hope I never do again but you can thank Greg Serb for that what fight have you had that you didn't expect to be as tough and as difficult as it was that turned out to be that way unexpectedly so? Um, I mean, I go into every fight thinking it's, it's going to be a war, but probably I didn't expect the Jermaine fight to go the way it did. Right. That's the first fight I actually let the crowd get in my head. Sure. And because I outboxed him for two rounds. Oh, you sure did. I don't sure think did. he denied that either. No, you I, outboxed I him, and then you went in and tried to get more aggressive, and it, it didn't go your way after that as much. Yeah, the, and you allowed it to be yeah, closer than it should have been. Yeah, the middle of the second round, um, I heard the crowd booing because I was boxing him. I wasn't getting close to him. I was hitting him when I wanted to hit him. And um, it, it probably was. It was probably a boring fight to watch, and they started booing. And I heard it, and I had some of my students that I trained at my gym at the time were there watching me as well. I remember And that. it just it went to my head, and I was like, fuck this. And I started stalking forward, which you know I don't fight moving forward. No. And um, started trying to land power shots, which you know I'm not a power guy. I still thought I won the fight, but oh, it was, a, it was a draw at worst. I agree. Um, yeah. Fun fact about that night, there were, I think, 13 or 14 fights on that on that card, I worked five of them that <laughs> night. Nice. Won a couple of championship belts, amateurs, but my goodness, that That's... was just, oh, that was a very difficult night. That was a night Dave fought Jason Smith. What fight of yours, just just give me the fight, would you put in the time capsule for people to watch of yours? What's your time capsule fight? Just one fight? Yes. Matt Deskins. That'd be that'd be good. What's a fight that didn't happen that you want that you wanted to happen? You wish that it did, but it never happened. Luke Loins. Uh, yeah, and you know who you can blame for that one. Methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, no, the fight was uh, supposed to happen in Williamson, and then it didn't. Oh no, JP, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> we already know that though. Yeah, bingo. Uh, what's a fight? Can you, you tattoo a turd? <laughs> <laughs> I like to get a, I like to shit and then get a JP tattoo on a turd. I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little story. This isn't defamation of character. It's just true. It's true. Um, this is a fight that happened up in Parkersburg a couple about a month ago, month and a half ago. There was an amateur fighter and he'd fought a few times, and they're now making inspectors sign off on cotton hand wraps for tough man fighters. And it, explaining why that's stupid. The wraps with see the- Justin's laughing. I mean. <clears throat> I can't even go into the reasons why that doesn't make any sense, but they're making them do that now. And this guy is just furious because he's trying to deal with this and it's an annoyance. And he said, man, I can't stand some of the people on this commission. Some of them are just completely out of control. And I said, really? Anybody in particular? He said, yeah, that bald one that's standing out there by ringside. And I, I didn't say a word. And he said, yeah, I had to deal with him at the Parkersburg tough man. You know what I told him? I told him that it's good that he has a shaved head and he has a little point on top of it because now he looks exactly like what he is, a fuck dick. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know who you are, sir, but I hope you win your fight tonight because that was hilarious. That's awesome. What fight did you take that looking back, if you could retroactively reject it, you would say no to? Um, Lee McGinnis. Oh, the tough, the world tough man champion. 
Yeah, I fought him with a separated AC. I don't oh, know if anybody knows that. Justin, or not, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, why did you do that? I was I was training MMA fighters at the time, and I got judo tossed and landed on my right shoulder, and oh, um, my my, my AC was separated. It was like eight millimeters or something like that. It it didn't it doesn't sound like a lot, but when, when I was at the doctor, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I was at the doctor, they were like, oh, how are you not, like, doubled over in pain? This is ridiculous. How'd you put your shirt on? I was like, I'm not a pussy. Well, you still but, took him, uh, You still took him four rounds, though, didn't you? Yeah, I took him until, I think it got, like, Tim Wheeler waved it off after a knockdown, like, two minutes and 40 seconds into the fourth round. Yeah. It, I know it was right toward the end, but, yeah, I can I yeah. can see that. Was that. Is that one that you'd like to have another shot at, or you would just go back and retroactively say no? I would love to fight him right now. He's like four hundred pounds. Yeah, now. we saw him, we saw him at the Travis Clark fight in Weirton, and my goodness, he didn't yeah. even look like the same guy. I know this is narrowed down to two. I just want to know right right off the top of your head which one you would pick. What's been your most bizarre moment in boxing? Is it the Conway fight or is it the Williamson incident? Oh, most bizarre moment? Um, probably. Yeah, I would probably have to say the Conway fight. Yeah, I'd have to agree. As I mean, as bad Williams- as Williamson was. Yeah. But the Conway fight, I've never seen a commissioner, a commissioner, a deputy, like the head, the head shit, not like a deputy or not like someone appointed the commissioner of the entire fucking state, jump in the ring and steal the scorecards from an announcer ever before in my life. You cannot come up with a scenario more crooked than that. You just can't. What's the most important outstanding goal that you still have in boxing for what you'd like to accomplish? What's the one thing that you've not done that you would really like to do? Um, I mean, shit, I don't know. I mean, everybody wants to win a minor title, but sure. I'm a realist. I'm way beyond that. Eh, um, not necessarily. There, there are ways for you to win a title. It's just going to be a matter of yeah, making but, it happen. But yeah, so let's do it. But is that probably it? You'd like to win a probably I'm, win a minor title or knock out Luke Loins. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're not going to rest until you get your shot to do that. No, because we were supposed to fight so many different times. That's true. Like he said no, he said no a bunch, and then um, I got a phone call. Like, hey, are you retired? And I'm like, yeah, I'm super fat. I haven't been training. And they were like, oh, well, Luke Loins is looking for a fight. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and, and of course, they agreed because I said I was fat and out of shape, which I was. It wasn't a lie. I mean, hell, I do these stupid dance videos on Fridays, and I'm winded by the end of them, and they're only a minute long. Yeah, there but, are, there is nothing like your your uh, Friday dance videos. I will say that. Where can we find? Where can people find those if they want to see them? Just on Facebook, or are they on Snapchat yeah. too? No, just on my Facebook. Okay. Um, Justin Navara, N O V A R I A. Check me out. <laughs> just kidding. I got him a step really in a, a mud hole for you, by the way. They're Luke Lyons. <laughs> <laughs> We went up there and uh, hung out with them for a little while. Yeah, we we went up there and sparred with some of Corky's guys, and uh, I think we performed extremely well in those spar sessions with Melvin and with Luke and and whoever that amateur was that they had. What's nice. the what's the worst job that you've ever had? The worst job I've ever had. Prob- I was a cable technician for a while. I remember it paid that. really really good, but I would leave for work at five thirty in the morning. And I would still be installing cable in people's houses at like ten thirty at night. Didn't I used to help you with your timesheets for that job? You did, yes, I thought because so. they refused, like they refused to um, show me how to do the shit, like myself. Trying to rip you um, off, yeah. That's what trying to do. I, That's what I, it was. I didn't, I didn't have the software needed in order to d- do my daily logs. So, like, I would do them when I went into work in the morning, but on my day off, they would want me to drive all the way to Columbus, which is 70 miles from my house, which is where I worked, and do my timesheet. So instead of doing that, I would just I would save the shit and email it to myself on my phone, and then I would send that to Brad, and Brad would <laughs> I would tell him all my shit, and he would fill it out for me, and then send it back to me, and then I'd email it to my boss. I had forgotten Damn. about that until you just mentioned that. What's your dream job? You could have any dream job. What is it? Um. Man, I don't know if I should answer it serious or if I should be comedic about it because I would love to be a fluffer that gets like the girls wet for porn. That's right. But I do that. But I would, I would re- realistically, because I have a wife and she would like 
cut my dick off what little <laughs> bit I have um, if I ever took a job as a fluffer. So fluffer. I really, 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 really enjoy fabricating uh, metal trim for like metal roofing and stuff. I've had uh-huh. that job twice in my life and both times the companies have went under and but that's been my favorite job in the world. So if I had to pick, I would probably do that again. That's cool. What's your uh, What was your favorite part of childhood? My favorite part of childhood was I had two. The racetrack. I loved going to the races with my dad. And then, like, from early adolescence to, like, late teen, like, when me and my wife started dating around 16, was the skating rink. And that's probably why I'm so agile. As well, because I skated. Lomachenko. Yeah, that's your that's your version of Lomachenko and the <laughs> and, and the traditional Russian dance. That's pretty cool. Um, if you could live inside of any one movie, which one would you live in? Oh, damn it! Um, I would probably any one movie. See, there's there's so many different ones. I'm just, I'm going to have to shoot off top. Um, I just seen um, Ready Player One. I feel like that'd be super neat. That's a good movie. That's a good pick. That's a great book and a good movie. What's something that people think about you that isn't true? Um, A lot of people, like, just looking at me, assume I'm an asshole. I mean, I am to a point, but like they just think I'm really, they think I'm mean. I'm blunt. I'm not an asshole. I just, I'll tell you how I feel. You were the least but, mean and angry person I have ever known. <laughs> See, and people, they look at me and they're like, man, I don't want to fuck with that guy. But really, I'm, I'm not like that. No, so you're docile. Probably that, yeah. You're docile. Okay. I just like to make people smile. That's that's like my main goal in life is make make the world smile. And, you know, we need more of that. There's not nearly enough of it. Okay, so, and that kind of unintentionally flows into the next question. What do you think is society's biggest problem? Society's biggest problem is everybody's pretentious assholes. Yes. Like every, like, 90% of the world, I'm not going to say the world, 90% of the states is so much about me, 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 me. How can I get ahead? How can I do this? How can I do that? And it's not about, like, Oh man, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? Everything good in your life? Or how have you been? Like everybody's so worried about telling other people what's going wrong in their life. And nobody's worried about sharing the good stuff. Nobody's worried about making the world smile anymore. So it's all, all it's, it's all selfishness. It's all selfishness. Yeah. What's your primary strength? Like just in general in life? Yeah. What What, uh-huh. what would you say is your biggest strength? I don't give a shit. What's your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness is that I don't give a shit. <laughs> that's, that's, you know what, though? that the, That's an interesting approach. That's the whole point of doing this. What's the worst car you've ever owned? The worst car I've ever owned? I had a um, 1997 Monte Carlo that we bought off of one of my mom's boyfriend's friends that, oh, they said it was a steal, had a rod knocking. Yeah, they were stealing from me. And yeah, it was it was a steal, them stealing my money. Indeed. And um had a rod knocking, but that wasn't the worst part of it. The headlights would decide they didn't want to work randomly. It had like a short. <laughs> and I just dropped Brittany off, my wife, from homecoming, seventeen year old kid, and she lives in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like you guys probably understand that. Being, <laughs> Gee, thanks. Being out there, yeah. I mean, hey, West Virginia has stereotypes. <laughs> we have some rural <laughs> places. We do, but we're not in one right now. No stereotypes are yeah. truths. In some yeah. places, <laughs> truths. But yeah, she li- she lives in the middle of nowhere, and I'm leaving. And now, subsequently, this story is the reason that there's a bridge on her mom's road named oh, Justin no. Bridge. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> I was driving my Monte Carlo, just dropped her off from homecoming. It's pitch black out. There's no streetlights or anything because it's a, it's a rural road. And um, it's a little concrete bridge going over a creek. And the headlights decide to go out as a deer is running in front of me. Oh, my god! I hit this deer. Not hard enough to kill it. Deer was okay, dickhead. Oh, thank God. And, yeah, and I... I missed the bridge. I drive off the side of the bridge and wind up on my side. That car was such a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, Lord. If you could pick any day that you've ever had to be your 
personal Groundhog Day, the day you've got to live over and over and over again, what would it be? That's a tough one. Um, hmm. It would probably. I don't. I don't know because so much like just that one day. I never get to proceed past that day. Nope. Just like the movie, and the movie he eventually did, but you know, you, he had to live it so many times. Gotcha. Then I would. Pro- I would pick today. Hmm. Any particular reason? Yeah, because if I go back, like if I go too far back, not all three of my kids are going to be in that day. Um, if I go too far back, some of the memories that I have right now won't have existed, and I have some great memories. Um, just in the past couple of days, like last week, my daughter um, scored a couple of game-winning RBIs in her softball game. I'd love to remember that. I wouldn't want to forget that. She was so happy. And so I would just I would pick my most current moment, especially if I could change how the day goes over the repeatance of it or repentance, however the fuck, I don't know the day repeating. However, I could change it as many times as it repeats. Well, and that was, the would, whole, that was the whole point of the movie. And I, I really like your answer on that. That's, that's impressive. And that's a, that's a great way to, to think about that. I can't believe how old she's getting. I can't believe she's already playing softball. I know a little oh, prick. That, she's <laughs> seven. Oh, I cannot believe she, how old she is now. I know she used to be like a little ankle biter running around my gym and taking pictures with me and stuff. And well, I mean, we I used to be, to- we used to be going to, uh, where was it? We, we'd go to Eaton park after fights and we'd go there and she was, you know, just kind of like tucked over in the corner and barely talking. And now she's doing all this. And, oh, yeah. that's, that's incredible. Who it's has been, yeah. Who's been the most unexpected, unexpected major influence in your life? And I'm talking about outside of your immediate family. Yeah, I know. I know Tim is almost expected because of how many years he spent. And once you went to that gym the first day, that was just going to be that way. And and he turned into being a real father figure there. But who's the most unexpected major influence in your life? Somebody that's been been a big influence that you never would have really seen coming. I mean, as sappy as it sounds, and I'm not saying it to be sappy, but probably you, sir. Really? Yeah, I mean, because it was it wasn't expected at all. We oh, just I agree with linked that. Up and and I mean, and we've had so many like deep discussions, and I've came to you with life problems and just stuff that you didn't have to let me bounce off of you, and you've just always been there for me and. I mean, so yeah, so probably you, you've, you've helped me a lot more than you'll ever understand. And I appreciate it more than you'll ever understand. But yeah, thank you. That's probably my answer. Thank you. That was completely unexpected. Thank you, man. You are, I've been able, I've had the freedom to bring a lot of things to you over the years too. And I've done everything from, from talk about life issues in both directions with you to sending you excerpts of, of my writing, you sending me stuff that you've done creative writing on and I've done some editing and stuff. And, and you've really, and I, and I mean this, I this is not something I say lightly. You have become family to me and there are not many people who advance to that level. So to hear you say that means a great deal to me. Thank you very much. That means a lot. Oh no, I mean, it, it's the truth, man. No, no problem. Favorite musical artist. The Wood Brothers. I thought they were a NASCAR team in the 1980s. Favorite favorite, <laughs> I mean, fa- favorite song? Oh, my favorite song. Man, you, you know how I am with music. Um, Got to pick one. Give me something. I'll just, I'll go ahead and I'll pick a Wood Brothers song, Postcards from Hell. That I, I've never heard it, and now I'm afraid to listen <laughs> to it. Uh, oh, it, it is a wonderful, wonderful song. Favorite film? Favorite film. Um, Got to go with Days of Thunder. Whoa. That's a pretty good movie. Favorite author? Favorite author, Brandon Sanderson. Favorite book? Is it is it one of the Sanderson novels? Uh, I mean, favorite book, it, it kind of, it depends. Like, all-time favorite or, like, most influential? Give me, like, an all, give me both. Both. Uh, most influential is a book called Redwall. I forget the name of the author, but he wrote, like, 20 or so of them. But... It's and it's my favorite book because I was an advanced reader in sixth grade. My sixth grade teacher brought that to me. She said, "I can tell you're getting bored with what we're reading in class. Try this." And it was my first view awesome. into fantasy, and I just loved it. That and then my awesome. favorite, like my favorite all time book, is Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series. Very cool. And that is that is that the one that he's still doing? 
it's still going? No, no. Um, he's in. He's it. well. He's got he's got different variations of it going now. But the okay. original Mistborn series is just a trilogy. But gotcha. he's got spinoffs of it. Very cool. If you could change the outcome of one event, what would it be? It can be a sporting event, something else that could have gone one way or another, and you can change it. What would you? What event would you change? Mine would be a sporting event. Uh, yeah, I mean, mine's a sporting event too. Whether or not you call NASCAR sporting, but I would. Um, I would roll back the day that Dale Earnhardt died, 2001 Daytona 500. Mm-hmm. I remember that day very well. Yeah, I would. That ex- changed everything. That history. Yeah, absolutely. It did. Abs- absolutely, it did. Man. I don't. I don't think NASCAR would be as pussified as it is now if it still had a guy like that around. I don't think he would have let. He wouldn't have let everything that went down go down without a fight the way it has. If you could somehow bridge the gap, and I'm no NASCAR expert. My uncle loved NASCAR. But if you could somehow bridge the gap between putting in the safety mechanisms inside the cars that they have, but still maintain all the competition things they had up to that point, NASCAR wouldn't be in the trouble that it's in right now. Because I mean, they're on the verge of selling it from the family that's owned it for five or six decades. I am probably opening up a can of worms that is going to terrify me personally and then is going to make Steve incredibly happy. <laughs> What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? That I believe? Yes. 9-11 was an inside job. There you go. <laughs> when we do our conspiracy theory episode, you are so Skyping in on that yeah. on that one, because we're going to discuss that. And we are going to do an entire episode dedicated to uh, to conspiracy theories. Fun. What is an ability or what's an ability or a skill that you don't have, but you wish you did? Um, like that has to be realistic. Like it can't be like flying or anything. No, you can. Do, well, that will come in a later question. But, you know, okay. like, I know you can play uh, the guitar, but if somebody couldn't play the guitar, they'd say, you know, I wish I could play the guitar or I wish I could paint or, you know, something along those lines. A real world um, skill. I, I wish. I wish that I was fluid in three other languages. Okay. Flu- fluent. I said fluid like an idiot. You fluent. said fluid. You sure did. I heard you do it. So did everyone yeah. who's listening. I said it. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> why? So. That's why. That's not going to make anybody laugh. And you said you wanted to make people laugh. But uh, we've gotten to a point <laughs> where smile. We've gotten <laughs> to a point where speaking so many other languages is it's beyond being an extra. It's becoming a point where it's a necessity now because you can't just Google translate everything. It doesn't work that way, especially with so many different dialects in real time situations. But I think technology will help us more and more with that as we go on. What do you fear? Yeah. What do you fear? What do I fear? I um, I mean, it's super cliche, but I feared like something happening and me not being able to see my kids or something happening to my kids. Mm-hmm. That's fair. It shows you where your priorities okay. are. I, I got to say wife, too. She's probably going to listen to this. Probably so. Hi, Brittany. And while we're, at, you, Brittany? And while we're at it, hi, Stephanie. Okay. <laughs> she listens to all of them, too. All right. Now we're back. To, now we're back to the question you kind of referenced before. If you could only pick one superpower, what would it be? Uh, I mean, invincible. No, invincibility would be super sweet though. Probably super speed. Hmm, that'd be all right. Well, well hold on. If if I pick super speed, would I have invincibility as well, or am I going to tear myself apart running at Mach three? Well, you would think that if you have super speed, you'll have the physics to maintain it and deal with it. Otherwise, you'd okay. run fast once and die. Yeah, super speed, then. That's fair. All right. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Oh, I'm, I met a lot of famous people. Um, mostly boxing, though. Mm-hmm. Probably Roy Jones. Roy's up there. I've met Roy, and I've met Buster Douglas, too. And there's not many oh, people I've, more famous than Buster. <laughs> I've, I've met Buster a bunch. I go up to his gym and spar. He's a cool dude. Very yeah, I spar with Mike Glasscox up there all the time. He's... He's super relaxed, like in a gym setting when mm-hmm. he's not in like a person personal um, appearance setting. He's he's just he's a funny dude altogether. This is dangerous. Who's the celebrity you most want to meet? Say I most want to meet or most want to eat. Meet. Those are two different. Okay. <laughs> no, they're probably not two different answers. Knowing you, but okay. Who's the one you most want to meet? The mo- one I'm. Oh no, they're two. Di- one's a girl, one's a guy. Um, <laughs> the the celebrity that I most want to meet, I would love to meet Timothy Oliphant. Okay. Since she's now a member of the royal family, who has replaced Meghan Markle on your freebie five list? 
I mean, why does she have to go away? Well, she married into the British royal family. That's got to be a DQ. I'm American. Yeah, I know. And we we kicked the crap out of them in 1776 to get away from them. Gotcha. I mean, if if technically she has to disappear and go away, uh-huh. um, I don't know. That's a, probably Felicity Smoke from Arrow. Wow. All right. What's a realistic item on your bucket list? A realistic item? Um, I don't know how realistic it is, but to me, like, I know the proper people that it could possibly happen okay. one day, but I would love to spar with a world heavyweight champion. Don't care which one it is, but I would just, I would love to spar with one of them. I'll set you up with John Ruiz. Would you rather, yeah. would you rather be blind or deaf? Deaf. Even as much of a music guy as you are, you'd rather be deaf. I would rather be deaf because I, I, agree I, with you. I rely on my sight a lot. And I mean, I could still I could learn sign language, so I could still communicate. I could learn how to read lips. Um, I mean, I could probably still even play music. I wouldn't be able to enjoy it as much. Yeah, I mean that would be a giant downfall. But to never see my kids smile again, mm-hmm. and I mean also to never hear them laugh again, that would suck too. Because but to never see them smile, never see the joy in their eyes again, I would just no cochlear implants. They make them now, so if you are deaf, you can hear. That's true. What? Then, yeah, boom, right there. Loophole. I went. Ha <laughs> ha. That's good lawyering. Would you rather go back to age five with everything that you know now or know everything now that your future self will learn? Age five. Thank you. That's awesome. Would you rather be insanely rich and live 400 years ago or be poor and live today? Um, insanely rich 400 years ago. Would you rather be telekinetic? Or have the ability to read minds. Oh, man. Um, what are the limits on my um, telekinetic kineticity? I don't, I don't know. You're just you're telekinetic. You can do that kind of stuff. Or you can read minds. Take your um, I would be tele, telekinetic. Okay. DC or Marvel? Man, fuck you guys. <laughs> um, right back at you, Slick. <laughs> yeah, probably Marvel. Would you rather I love Would you rather live without music or TV? TV. Would you rather have your life remote with a rewind button or a mute button? I'm I got to go rewind. What's your favorite word? My favorite word is probably fuck. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Probably fuck. I mean, because my kids repeat it back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't doubt. All right, one last one last question. Okay. What do you believe is your primary mission in life? Um, to make people smile. I mean, I'm I'm a goofy motherfucker. That's that's obviously what I was put down here for. Is just to make people have a good time, forget about the worries for a little bit. Hey, there there are a lot. Worse ways to spend your life. And I'll tell you what, we need a lot more people like you out there oh, because yeah. we've got a lot of negativity in the world and all that's doing is dragging people down to a level where none of us need to be. Justin, thanks for letting us put you on the spot, my friend. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this segment up and we'll be back to close the show right after this on episode 11 of Apex Live. We'll be right back. <laughs> 